Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We've heard that expression, heavenly places, over and over in in this book. The theme, the great theme of the book of Ephesians has been Christ. And his church. In sweeping terms, Paul has encouraged the believer that we should know about our blessings in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, to remember our experience of salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, to faint and not grow uh, to to faint not and grow in the knowledge of and strength of the Lord in Ephesians 3:13 we're to walk worthy of our christian conduct in Ephesians 4:1 we're to put on the armor for the certain conflict that we must encounter Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 so paul has prayed that all the believers remember would be filled with the holy spirit that they would walk in newness of life and paul has exhorted the saints to be imitators of god as dear children in chapter 5 verse 1 The spirit-filled life leads to the spirit-filled walk, which leads to a spirit-filled warfare. All of that is what has preceded. And so when Paul says, finally, my brethren, he does so with the idea that you understand all that I've talked about. The spirit-filled life, the spirit-filled walk, where believers submit to God and one another in reverence. Remember we talked about humility and purity and unity. The walk of God includes wives and husbands and parents and children and masters and slaves, living, loving, obeying, respecting each other in such a way that it produces Harmony and holiness, peace and joy. But having said all of those things, Paul understands that the walk of the believer is going to lead to the warfare of the believer. The supernatural life means that we are going to have supernatural conflict. What Jesus has united in his glorious life, in his atoning death, in his glorious resurrection, Satan is going to seek to divide and deceive and destroy. And just as Jesus' purpose to promote harmony and purity and peace, Satan has purpose to destroy our lives. This is the reason why Jesus said that he comes but to rob and to steal and to destroy the faithful life described in chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 1, all the way to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, is supposed to bring us to this place of the warrior's life described at the end of chapter 6. Christian, count on this. If you are living with Jesus, if you are living with Jesus in a manner that's pleasing to the Father, if your life is a spirit-filled life, if your life is characterized by love instead of fear, sacrifice instead of selflessness, generosity instead of selfishness, joy instead of gloom, love instead of lust, light instead of darkness, fullness of the spirit instead of intoxication with drugs or alcohol from this world. If you're not facing conflict with your flesh, if you're not experiencing opposition from this world, if you're not experiencing conflict with the devil, it's because you're living a life of laziness at best. Or immorality at worst. The reason the devil doesn't 
bother with you is because you're no threat. It was Corey Ten Boom, the fam famous Dutch patriot, who famously said, Satan wastes no ammunition on those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Unbelievers, make-believers, they're not a problem. But if you find yourself in bitter conflict, if you find yourself in a raging battle, if you find yourself under relentless attack, then welcome. <laughs> welcome to the world of spiritual warfare. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in the army now. Paul is going to introduce us to the believer's power in verse 10. The believer's protection in verse 11. And then we're going to have a tiny brief look at our enemy in verse 12. And I certainly don't have time to go over everything. But as this study unfolds in the weeks ahead, I'm going to tell you more and more. We begin with the warrior's power. Look what it says. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Think about what I've just said. All Christians will fight spiritual battles. If you were with me as we were walking through in the book of Joshua, remember the theme was victory. It was walking in victory. All Christians have to make preparation. The prepared warrior, the well-trained warrior is the most effective warrior. And if you've ever been one of those people who have served in the military or served in our country and you've gone through basic training, there's a reason why it is the way that it is because the stakes are so high. Your training will keep you alive and keep those around you alive. When Paul writes, finally, my brethren, we could translate this phrase, from now on, I want you to have that stick in your mind. From now on, at beginning now, from now on, again, I want you to think about the context. Jesus has been crucified. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. From the time that Jesus left to the time that Jesus returns, this is the point that he is making. Jesus is gone. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. Until that time comes from now on. The Christian life. Your Christian life is going to include unceasing conflict with the world, with your flesh, with unseen, malignant, invisible forces. And so Paul is going to state an important principle. Behind earthly conflicts are invisible powers. Remember, God wants peace in your life. He wants harmony and unity. But guess what? A lot of you don't have peace and you don't have joy and you don't have harmony and you don't have unity. And since Jesus has come to heal us and Jesus has come to forgive us and Jesus has come to restore us because Jesus has come to, to heal what's been broken, Paul doesn't provide a biography on the devil or a history of his activity. And you're going to note that Paul assumes the existence of evil angels and wicked supernatural powers and unseen enemies. He takes it for granted. And he understands that the reader will do so as well. We live in a culture and a society that thinks often that the unseen realm and the invisible world is so much nonsense. But Paul is going to point out 
that it is real and that it is true. Paul will also point to the source of power, that the warrior's secret source of strength, he says it, be strong, note what he says, in the Lord and in the power of his mind. Notice he doesn't say, you need to cultivate strength and power. He is saying exactly the opposite. The Christian must not, I repeat, the Christian must not trust his or her own power. If you do, Satan will succeed in overwhelming you and overcoming you. If you seek to engage in this conflict with all of the resources, including your great looks and charming personality and keen sense of fashion, this isn't what's going to help you. And so here's where you need to understand. God's commands are God's promises. God's commands are God's promises. The moment that Paul writes, be strong. The moment he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You can rest assured that the scripture invites you to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and that that strength and power are available to you. This isn't something that you're going to have to beg for, cry for, plead for. The Lord wants to give it to you. You'll you'll remember in Joshua chapter 1 verse 6, the Lord told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. And you'll remember why he said that. He was getting ready to go in and occupy the land and it's going to take strength and courage because the land was occupied by people who don't want to leave. And remember, for those of you who are here for our Joshua study, remember why that was such a big deal because remember there were people in the land and they didn't want to leave. And when you became a Christian, there were things in your life that didn't want to go away. And so it's going to take strength and courage to confront your flesh and to confront this world and to deal with demons. He repeats the command in Joshua chapter 1 verse 7, be strong and of of good courage. He says, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Be strong, he says, in order to follow God's orders. In other words, God has given you an outline of what to do and what not to do. So when Joshua says, I want you to listen carefully and remember completely what you were told and don't deviate to the left and don't deviate to the right. Over and over, the Lord exhorts, be strong. 366 times in the Bible, the two words, fear not, occur. One for every day of the year and an extra one just in case you forget. Be strong in the Lord. Because the Lord says that he's sworn to give us what he promised. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 7. Be strong in the power of the Lord. I'll give you the strength. I will impart the power to you the Lord says. So the first lesson that the Christian has to learn is that God's Power and God's strength are available to us by the Holy Spirit. And Paul's already talked about this in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, he says, be filled and keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we concede and submit to the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of his word. And we join forces in prayer with the saints of God. Remember Paul said, quote, in Philippians 4, 3, I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it doesn't mean he can fly to the moon. It doesn't mean that he's going to be a world-class athlete. It means that he's going to be able to do everything that Jesus wants him to do. The presence of Jesus includes the power of Jesus. And we remember that from the New Testament. Nature obeyed him. The demon-possessed man worshipped him. The demons acknowledged his deity. And remember, 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 Jesus said, I would be with you and I will be in you. In 1 John, the writer John says, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And so now all of a sudden you begin to understand something. The presence and the power of God is in my life to accord me strength. God's power has already been described as exceeding in its greatness in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. Effectual in its working in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. Mighty in its essence right here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You have it. You have everything. The amount of power isn't nearly as important as the source of the power. You'll remember Jesus told the church in Philadelphia, In Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, not a lot of power, not great power, not overwhelming power, but just because you have a little power, and you've kept my word, and you haven't denied my name, a little power, or a lot of power, is always sufficient power in Christ and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so when you ask the question, how much power are you going to need? You are going to have sufficient power, effectual power, our relationship with Jesus because we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we don't need to fear Satan. Satan has power, but he doesn't have the power to send you to hell. That ship has already sailed. And that's why I keep saying to you, if you have no other reason to wake up in the morning other than the fact that you're not going to hell, you should wake up with a smile every morning. You should be able to go, I'm not going to hell. Can you believe it? Sometimes it should overwhelm you. I told you that sometimes I'm in McDonald's and all of a sudden the thought will come to me, And I'll have this silly grin on my face and the person taking my order will go, what are you smiling about? You're at McDonald's. (laughs) Sometimes I tell them. The death and the resurrection of Jesus destroyed the ultimate satanic weapons. Blindness. And bondage to sin. Remember in 1 John, again, the writer of John says, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Satan has taken his best shot and he has lost. Now, even though he has taken his best shot and he has lost, we are at war. And we have a fierce and determined and clever enemy we are at war but it is a but it is a a hopeless confrontation for the prince of darkness and his evil designs he has lost our power and strength doesn't simply come from the knowledge that satan has lost but from god's unfailing grace from prayer from the knowledge of god for obedience to his word faith in his promises and joining together in prayer. And so we see the warrior's power and then the warrior's protection. Look at verse 11. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The prepared warrior knows God is the source of power and God is the source of protection. In order to take full advantage of our enemy, we have to put on the full armor. That is, the believer must take and use all the equipment that God has made available to us. And that's the way you need to think about it right from the start. When Paul says, put on the full armor, he's saying, take and use everything that God has made available to you. Now, I want to point something else out to you. The expression, put on, means put on once and for all. And so this armor is different from a regular soldier's gear because at some point the battle is going to be over and the soldier is going to be able to take off his or her gear. The police officer is going to be able to take off the uniform. The baseball or the football player gears up for the conflict on the field, but they get to take their uniform off. You never take your armor off. This is something that you wear at all times. The implication being once you put it on, you never put it, you never take it off. And that's the implication in, in the verb tense here. It says, put it on. The idea being, put it on, keep it on, never take it off. Why? Because spiritual warfare isn't temporary or temporal, and it isn't a game. It was never supposed to be just simply the subject of theological curiosity or, or scholarly considerations. In other words, if you came because you're interested in spiritual warfare, I'm hoping that you're going to stay because you're going to be in the conflict whether you like it or not. So instead of getting interesting information about theological insights into spiritual warfare, I'm going to remind you that you will fight. And there will come a time when you're going to have to be fighting for your life. You're going to have to hold on to the promises of God. We watch movies, we play games, we entertain ourselves with a variety of distractions that we hope will never turn deadly. You might like riding your bike, but who wants to be killed on their bike? You might like bungee jumping, but who wants the cord to snap? You might like parasailing, but what happens if there's a hole in it? This isn't just a game. Warfare in the metaphor, is always deadly. In real warfare, people get shot and people die. Warfare is combat. And the armor of God is meant to be your lifelong companion. The armor of God gives you supernatural protection. The armor of God is the protection of God who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his glorious presence with great joy, it says in Jude chapter 1 verse 24. And so he says, put it on. Put on the whole armor and note where it is. It comes from God that you may be able to stand. Again, he doesn't mix metaphors, but he continues with the metaphor. Stand firm is a military term and a military metaphor. It means to hold a critical position in a time of attack. To hold a critical position in the time of attack. The critical position and the time of attack is again now. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Until he comes back, you are in a critical position and you must stand your ground. The intent of the exhortation is like what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira. 
In Revelation chapter 2, verse 24, where Jesus says, Now to you I say, and to the rest at Thyatira, as many as do not this doctrine, who have known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast. Same expression. Stand your ground. Hold fast. How long? Till I come. And so this is why it makes good sense every morning to pray. Today, maybe this day my beloved will come. But until then, we're going to hold on and we're going to hold fast. Now again, I want you to picture in your mind Paul writing this message. He's in a Roman prison. He's almost certainly chained to a Roman Guard. Much of Paul's life at this point, as he is awaiting trial before Caesar Nero, he has a Roman guard, if you will. And I suspect under the power of the Holy Spirit, he starts looking at this guard. He starts looking at his helmet and his breastplate and his belt, and his chaps, and his shoe, and his sword. He is looking at it. Scholars and Bible teachers have speculated that he's probably chained. It makes perfect sense that God is going to use even that as an illustration for an in-depth study on how to stand against our enemy. And he begins to think that we need weapons in order to stand, look what it says, against the wiles of the devil. Paul uses a cognate in that particular sentence. The word wiles is methodia. You know that word. We get the word method from it. The methods, the schemes. It's the same word used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. It's rare, rare in other Greek writings, but it seems to have a military usage. The word was used to describe a reasoned strategy. So when Enemy combatants would come together on the field of battle. There would have to be a strategy of how you're going to engage your enemy and overwhelm your enemy. And that's exactly what he's using. It means a reasoned strategy. We might say scheme. We might say device. The word is plural. Satan has more than one way to deceive and to destroy the saint. And so the word contains the idea of craftiness and cunning and deception and misdirection. The term was also used to describe an animal that's hiding and the animal spots his prey and he figures out how am I going to eat this prey and he considers his prey and what the prey is doing and exactly when is going to be the time to unexpectedly pounce and consume your prey this is why the bible also says that your enemy the devil is like a roaring lion who roams seeking whom he may devour so satan's schemes are built around two broad things. The first is deception and the other one is stealth. Dave Brees, who wrote a wonderful book called His Infernal Majesty, Satan's Ten Most Believable Lies. In that book, he includes some of Satan's most popular lies, including that God is a cosmic sadist, that God doesn't really love you, that he hates you, and that he only wants to hurt you. In other words, this is one of Satan's big lies. People say, oh, God loves you. Well, if God loves you so much, then how do you explain your life? How do you explain the problems? How do you explain the conflict? How do you explain the disease? How do you explain the setback? Satan's lie is God doesn't love you. He wants to hurt you. 
Satan would have you believe that God is a cosmic killjoy. That God is in heaven and all he wants to do is make sure that you don't have any fun whatsoever. We laugh. But we know that secretly inside of our hearts, sometimes we think the sinister thought that, oh no, I can't be a Christian. That means, why don't we just suck all the life out of me right now? Clearly, Satan's a liar, and he promotes lies, and I want you to think about it. His ultimate goal is to damn his victims. But once you're in your situation, what do you do once you're saved? No matter what he does to you, you're, you're going to heaven, and it irritates him. And so he wants to make sure that you are as miserable as you can possibly be before that time arrives. And remember what the book of Ephesians has been dedicated to. It's Jesus and the church and the blessings and the benefits of what it means to be a Christian. Satan's favorite weapon is deception. But he has other things at his disposal. Suffering, pride, accusation. These are his favorite weapons. His targets are your mind and your body and your will and your heart and the conscience of the believer. So what does Satan want? He wants to make you ignorant of God's will. He wants to make you impatient with God's will. He wants you to act in a way that's independent of God's will. He wants to have your conscience indicted by God's will so that you live a life of constant frustration and accusation as you're trying to make up for your failures. It's interesting to me that lies are meant to make you ignorant of God's will. And suffering is meant to make you impatient with God's will. And pride is meant to cause you to act in a way that's independent of God's will. And accusation is meant to cause your heart and your conscience either to ignore God's will or harden your heart against God's will. And now all of a sudden you begin to understand just how important the subject of God's will is for you. And you know what God's will is? That you're saved. And if you're saved, it's God's will that you walk in peace and in joy and in harmony. It's God's will that you experience not just life, but abundant life. Satan targets the mind with lies. He targets the body with suffering. He targets our will with pride. He targets our heart with accusation. No wonder, no wonder our defense against Satan is the inspired word of God. We have the truth to guard against lies. We have the grace of God, the imparted grace of God, so that we when we're faced with suffering, which will come, we can remember Paul's words that he prayed. Lord, I'm in trouble and I'm hurt. And I want you to take the pain away. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient. You will have sufficient grace. I wish I could say to you, you're never going to suffer. You're not going to suffer the loss of a loved one. You're never going to get sick. It's never going to happen, but it would be a lie. And remember Jesus said in John chapter 18, remember he said, remember when Pilate asked him the question, are you a king? And he says, for this reason I came into the world so that I could bear witness of the truth. Not impose the truth, not stuff it down your throat, so that I could remind you that there is such a thing as truth. And remember what he said, everyone who loves the truth hears my voice. We have the word of God. We have the grace of God. 
we have the indwelling spirit of God so that we don't have to succumb, give in, cave in to pride's temptations. Pride wants to have its own way. Here's one of the ways that you know that this is an issue of pride. I want to have my way. What about God's way? I don't want God's way. I want my way. The moment that you don't want God's way and you want your way, then you know it's an issue of pride. We have the interceding son of God, Jesus in heaven, praying for us. When Satan stands before the throne of God and begins to accuse you before your father. Look at what a, why did you save that person? Look at what a jerk they are. Look at what a hypocrite they are. Look at how inconsistent they are. Look at what, look what they're thinking and look what's going on inside of their heart and look at all of their failures. And Satan is accusing you and accusing you and accusing you and Jesus is at the right hand of the father going, I love them. I died for them. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've secured their salvation. I've made sure that the penalty of sin is removed and that the power of sin is removed and eventually the presence of sin will be removed when Jesus takes you out of here. And then we have the warrior's enemies. Look what it says in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against all the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And note what he's saying. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, even when we think that that is exactly what we're wrestling against. It's my husband. It's my wife. It's my children. It's my boss. It's my insensitive pastor. In the fog of spiritual war, we forget that our battle isn't against each other. It isn't against human beings. We listen to lies. We become overwhelmed by our physical or mental anguish or suffering. We feed our pride. We listen to the accusations of the, the enemy. So how are we to prepare? How can we prepare for Satan's attacks on our mind and on our body and feeding our pride and telling us lies? How can we prepare? We need to make sure that we have the right tool and the right weapon. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, and remember your flesh is everything that you are apart from God. You live in a physical world. You have a physical body. You live here. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means made of flesh, physical, temporal, isolated, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. When Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, he imagines a city. He imagines a strong city. He imagines it with high walls and huge towers and impregnable defenses and he has seen some of these cities and I've seen the remnants of some of these cities in Jerusalem in parts of Turkey in Greece in Rome the citadel was impregnable the fortress unassailable and he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He's using terms like argument. That's the Greek word logismos or logismos. It, it means in context to speculate. The word seems to mean 
the prejudiced thoughts that occupy our minds, casting down arguments, twisted thoughts, prejudiced thoughts, perverted thoughts, twisted philosophies, distorted philosophies, rationalizations. These are plausible but untrue excuses that we think about as Satan plants in our brain all the reasons why we should feed our pride, feed our flesh, believe the accusation. And then deny the truth. And then resist the truth. And then reject the truth. Spiritual enemies require spiritual weapons. They are invisible, eternal, malignant forces. Our most powerful weapon is the word of God. And the spirit of God, which we're going to talk about later. Most of our weapons that are going to be given in this chapter are defensive. In other words, almost everything that God is going to entrust us with, give us to wear and that we're to wear every day. It isn't in order to mount a campaign against the enemy, but to defend against the enemy. And the one offensive weapon that we are given in our arsenal is found in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And we're going to discover when we get there that this is Jesus's weapon of choice. When he finds himself in a conflict with Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. So when Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he implies three things right off the bat. Number one, the struggle is supernatural. It is not natural. It is supernatural. It is not visible. It is invisible. The struggle is a struggle. And that it's a personal struggle. So number one, the struggle is supernatural. Number two, the struggle is personal. And number three, the fight is futile in the flesh. If you're going to use clever imagination and manipulation, this isn't what's going to work. The word wrestle, by the way, isn't playful. It isn't entertaining. You know, I grew up in a world where my grandpa on my mom's side loved worldwide wrestling, WW wrestling. He loved championship wrestling. His idea of a boatload of fun was to go down to the civic auditorium and watch the wrestlers wrestle with each other and, and entertain the, 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 the troops, if you will. But in ancient Greece, the wrestler would sometimes have their eyes gouged out. In the ancient world, wrestling didn't just mean some people win and some people lose. In the ancient world, it wasn't unusual to die. So the word wrestling or struggling is a word that describes the type of, of fighting. It's a fighting that's characterized by trickery, deceit, with the implication of destruction when it's all over with. Spiritual warfare isn't limited to some sort of warrior class of Christian or special forces Christian. This isn't like, okay, we have, we have regular people and then we have the Christian SEAL team. We have the Green Berets. These are the people who are tasked with spiritual warfare in order to protect us all. The text is making it clear, you are in the fight. You are in the struggle. And you aren't going to make it unless you put on the armor. And so, I 
think Paul is trying to help us understand that the stakes are high. And he's trying to help us understand that apart from Christ and apart from his spirit and apart from his word, you are no match for Satan and his demons. And so for the stupid person who says, I bind you, devil, or let bring it on, devil, beware. Beware. I think I, got, I told you guys on the playoff situation where the Jacksonville Jaguars were playing against the New England Patriots and one of the Jaguar defensive backs said, I guarantee you we're going to win this game. I guarantee you we're going to school them. I guarantee you that we're going to the Super Bowl. And the defensive lineman for the Patriots said, be humble or be humbled. And of course, this isn't, you know, this isn't me promoting one team over another. This is me saying, be humble or be humbled. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Before you were saved, before you were saved, before you ever came into a right relationship with God and Christ, do you remember, can you remember back in those days when you were doing whatever it is you were doing, when you were living however you were living, you were loving however you were loving, you were believing whatever it is you were, were believing, and you may or may not have believed in supernatural forces. You may or may not have believed that they were at work in your life. You may or may not have thought that you were in charge of your life and Satan was not in charge of your life. But the Bible says, apart from Christ, everyone lies in the lap of the wicked one. All of your friends, all of your family who don't know Jesus, who don't love Jesus, who have never been born again. If you said to them, oh, do you think you're being manipulated and duped by Satan? What are they going to say to you? You're such a freak. You're such a Jesus freak. This is the reason why I don't want to go to church. And this is the reason why I don't want to read my Bible. Because of these scary, stupid things that you believe. But the Bible says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And they are, there's an invisible world that's being manipulated by invisible forces. You may have thought that you're that you were in charge of your life and that your decisions and your choices and your actions were fully and freely your own. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the only person, the only person, the only person who has even one smidgen of opportunity to submit and believe and trust the Lord are those people who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul lists four enemies that we wrestle against. Number one, principalities. Number two, powers. Number three, rulers of the darkness of this age. Number four, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And as he's putting this little sentence together, the Greek word principalities is arche or arche. It means first, principle. It means sovereign. It always meant first, either in time or power, or dominion. He's describing a spiritual hierarchy of invisible and supernatural beings with powers that are almost beyond description. These are spiritual beings. And I, I suspect that they're related to a fierce class of principal angels that are high-ranking and authoritative. You'll remember in the Bible that Lucifer was the chief angel. And according to the book of Revelation, we have every reason to believe that one-third of all of the angelic beings that were ever created by God in rebellion and disobedience went with Lucifer. And remember, 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 these forces are angelic beings. Remember when Adam and Eve fell in the garden? When they fell in the garden and they sinned, they didn't cease to be human. 
And rebellious angels don't cease to be angels. They're, they're in rebellion. And whatever it intrinsically means to be an angel, with all of the powers and all of the privileges and all of the prerogatives of an angelic being, those powers, privileges, and prerogatives are simply confined sovereignly by God. But it's a world that we're not often given access to. And he uses the word powers. The word literally means authorities. And he's speaking about authorities, that is, those who for reasons are given the right to rule. He talks about the rulers of the darkness of this age. Literally, it says world rulers. It's one word. Of this darkness. Art and Gingrich define this as meaning rulers of this invisible world or of this sinful world. Now, I want you to pause for a moment because when he says rulers of the darkness of this age, rulers of this sinful world, again, we've already understood what Paul said at the beginning that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So he's already told us that whatever it is that we're talking about, these aren't human beings. Are there human beings in this world who are presidents, who are judges, who are kings, who are dictators, who are whatever it is that they are? Paul is intimating that whatever these people are and whatever that they're doing, that there are invisible, supernatural powers at work manipulating them, guiding them, leading them. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Literally, it says in the Greek text, the spirits of the wickedness in the heavenlies. This must mean Spirit beings who tempt human beings. Who and what are these beings? These are the invisible armies of Satan. These are demons. They are organized. They are numerous. They are committed to malevolent plans of perverting and subverting God's people and God's plans. And we've already hinted that Satan wants to make you ignorant of God's will. And so, we've already hinted that he wants to make you impatient with God's will or act independently of God's will. These demons are quite content to ruin your life, to place you in bondage, they're quite content to ruin your marriage and ruin your health and ruin your friendship and ruin your relationship. And like I said, Satan's ultimate goal is for the damned to stay damned and for the saved to be miserable in their salvation. Impotent. In what really matters. The spiritual forces of wickedness are possibly those demons that are involved with the most disgusting forms of sin and self-destruction, including perverse sexual practices. Demons that invite and empower people into the journey of the occult realm or the demonic world. There are demons, invisible sources that love it when you alter your state of consciousness and you enter into supernatural experiences and of course, let's not forget the film industry. This is where the wicked hierarchy of demonic beings have, it's sort of their Disneyland. People who practice witchcraft, other forms of the occult, they're merely dupes, puppets of demonic forces. And of course, the people who actually don't even believe in these forces. Paul's purpose isn't simply to give you a detailed list of the hierarchy of demons. 
but to show their power and their sophistication that we are up against a terrible host of wicked spirit beings and so that we have to keep in constant mind that we must turn to God for our protection and provision. We, this is why it's called spiritual warfare. And much of what passes for spiritual warfare has nothing to do with what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. And so the idea of Christians casting demons out of Christians is nonsense. When you become a Christian and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, remember we've already talked about the walk of the believer and what it means to be a spirit filled believer. And if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, the Holy Spirit isn't going to go, who are you? I'm a demon. I want in. Sorry. This place is already taken. The Holy Spirit doesn't sublet your apartment to demons. And so a lot of people who struggle with physical, filthy flesh would love to blame it on a demon because they don't want to repent and they don't want to turn from their sin. Do you realize that there's not a single, not even one, not one single example in the New Testament of a believer being demonically possessed? Some people will say, well, what about Judas? You just talked about Judas. No. Jesus called Judas a devil. He said, have I not chosen you and one of you is a devil? The Bible doesn't paint Judas as a believer who trusted Christ as his savior. And Jesus, by the way, doesn't expel Satan from Judas. You'll notice that when Satan enters Judas's heart, Jesus doesn't go, come out of him, you foul devil. That's not what happens. By the way, the biblical solution to real demonic Possession is an exorcism. The biblical solution for a Christian, the Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. If there's one good thing about the devil, he's a coward when you resist him. This one lady was so nice that one of the elders in the church said, you're so nice. You're, you have something nice to say about everyone. I'll bet you, you would even have something nice to say about the devil. And she said, you do have to admire his persistence. <laughs> Demons don't procreate. Their number is fixed. However many there are, there's lots of them. And again, the Bible seems to indicate that these heavenly messengers created by God to serve God were seduced by Lucifer in an insurrection in heaven. They're ancient and they're awesome and they're organized. They exist for the destruction of human beings. And sadly, even though their cause is lost, they won't give up. Satan is God's enemy, and he's our enemy. Satan is no match for God, and you are no match for Satan. If God has a singular weakness, it's his love for you and me. He loves you so very much. And so Satan's greatest thrill is to harm you. God ultimately, theologically, has no weakness. God can't be overthrown. God can't be defeated. God can't be undermined. And again, we live in a culture that seems to gravitate towards two equal and opposite extremes. The first is to dismiss the supernatural altogether on its face and to relegate talk of Satan and demons to ancient myths and superstitions. The other is to see him everywhere, in everything. The Bible doesn't grant Satan unlimited power or control. Does Satan have power? The answer is yes. 
Does he control certain people in certain circumstances? I'm sure that the answer is yes. Does Satan have limited control? The answer is yes. Do devils and demons truly influence and possess people today? The answer is yes. So how is a Christian to deal with demons? In Ephesians chapter 1, at the beginning of our, our book, remember Paul wrote, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. We have power and strength in Christ because God raised him from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the, of the Father. We submit to God. We resist the devil. It says in James chapter 4, verse 7, we submit to God. We resist the devil. We've already received and experienced what the Bible calls the exceeding or surpassing greatness of God's power. Look what it says. The exceeding or surpassing power for those who believe. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe that he actually came into your heart? Do you believe in this powerful Holy Spirit living inside of you? The Christian does not find a way of merely sending demons away. The Christian must be committed to the work of grace and the work of holiness in his or her own life. And what this means when it says submit to God and don't give place, don't give ground. You give no ground to the devil in your life. A Christian has been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. We're strengthened with might. It says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. He has delivered us. He has delivered us from the powers of darkness and conveyed to us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through the blood and the forgiveness of sin. If all of that is true, and it is, you have nothing to worry about. So there's four quick principles on which to stand, and we're going to talk a little bit more as we continue. Number one, no satanic assault is stronger than God. You're experiencing assault. It's powerful. It's painful. It's difficult. There's no satanic assault stronger than God. Number two, no satanic attack can penetrate God's armor. Remember, you're going to put it on. And you're going to leave it on. It's never coming off. Number three, no satanic force can defeat God's work. God has a work for you. It must be done. It has to be fulfilled. Number four, no satanic evil can prevail over the prayers of the saints. Remember, it's an invisible war. Your prayers are a spiritual weapon. The moment you open your mouth and you pray, Heavenly Father, I can't, but you can. Lord, in my suffering, I want to doubt. In my pride, I want what I want. But Lord, you've given me an alternative. You've said that I could submit to you. Lord, in order to submit to you, I need to know what it is that you want. I need to know your will. Lord, I don't want to resist your will or reject your will. Lord, I don't want to grow impatient with your will. Lord, I don't want to allow the accusations of the enemy to determine how I will or won't go forward. 
And you see, the moment you begin to pray that prayer and you submit yourself to God, you will resist the devil and he will flee. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is just the beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for your grace. Lord, thank you for the champions that we have that even though we experience pain and suffering, we have grace. Even though we experience difficulty, challenges, we have a champion. Even though our flesh wants what our flesh wants, Lord, we have a supernatural Holy Spirit living in us, strengthening us, empowering us. Lord, we have a Savior seated at the right hand of you, and Lord, we know and are confident that you have overcome this world. Jesus told us in the world we're going to have tribulation, but that we should be of good cheer. Not bummed out. That we should be of good cheer. Because Jesus has overcome the world. And so Lord, again, as we prepare to put on the armor and leave it on, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us with your power and with your might. In Jesus' name, amen.